The U.S. defense industry is large, complex, and competitive. It is also lucrative for those companies able to navigate it successfully. The American Society of Military Comptrollers helps bridge the gap between the boardroom and the battlefield while supporting transformation in the defense sector. The Business of Defense podcast brings you inside the companies working to achieve this directly from the business leaders and to understand how they create value for their companies and their customers. For more information on ASMC, visit asmconline.org. Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the rising concern over Facebook as more and more negative impacts of the site become evident to an ever-expanding group of concerned people. And more specifically, we show how it is the fundamental business model of Facebook that is at the heart of its problems. Also today, two major changes to the show are taking place very coincidentally, both on today's episode, so stay tuned to learn all about that. Clips today are from Democracy Now!, On the Media, Your Undivided Attention, The Social Dilemma, The Michael Brooks Show, and TED Talks. AOC tweeted, hypothetically, if you were, say, a member of Congress sitting on the Financial Services Committee, given five minutes to question Mark Zuckerberg, what would you ask? What would you advise these Congress members ask Mark Zuckerberg, the man you knew very well, you invested in early on? So I think the issue for all members of Congress, irrespective of what committee they're on, essentially distills to the same thing which is Mr. Zuckerberg, you've built one of the most successful businesses in American history, but at enormous cost. To me, Facebook is like the oil companies of the 50s. It's artificially profitable because it pours waste products wherever it feels like. Think about it. In the 50s, chemical companies would pour mercury into fresh water. Mining companies would leave the residue wherever it fell. Gas stations would pour oil into the sewer. And the destruction to our public health and to our environment was enormous. And eventually, we woke up and realized that the oil companies should be responsible for all this. And I believe that every member of Congress, in fact, everyone at every level of government in the United States and elsewhere, needs to hold Internet platforms accountable because what they're creating are toxic digital spills. And they're doing enormous harm to society. And in financial services, in my mind, their question today relates to a cryptocurrency. There is no way in God's green earth Facebook should be allowed to do that. But not just Facebook. No corporation should be allowed to create a currency that competes with the dollar. That's just not in the national interest. In fact, you know, you mentioned a moment ago Greta Thunberg. If I can just pivot slightly, there's a point I would love to make to all of the viewers, which is if you look at the biggest issues we face as a country, whether it's climate change, whether it's anti-vax, whether it is gun violence or white supremacy or anti-immigrant, on every one of these issues, the harmful side of the argument, the one that is denying climate change or is promoting anti-vax or promoting gun violence or white supremacy, in each case, that side gets amplification because of internet platforms that gives them more political power than their numbers should allow. And if we want to fix climate change, if we want to fix 
gun violence or end the mania of anti-vax, we're going to have to do something about Internet platforms. And that is the common issue affecting politics across all of America. And let's understand, this is not an accident. This stuff is not about the freedom of speech or freedom of expression. It's about the fact that these companies amplify hate speech, disinformation, and conspiracy theories because that stuff is just more profitable for them. And in my mind, they, they should no, no more be allowed to do that than a capital company should be allowed to pour mercury into fresh water. So let me ask you about some of what you wrote in Zucked. I mean, all of these issues you raise. But you write about changes that grew the social network into the giant it is today. You say, in researching this book for key moments in the history of Facebook, one that stands out occurred months before I got involved. In the fall of 2005, Facebook gave users the ability to upload photographs. They did it with a new wrinkle— tagging the people in the photo that helped to define Facebook's approach to engagement. Tagging proved to be a technology with persuasive power as users felt obligated to react or reciprocate when informed they'd been tagged. A few months after my first meeting with Zuck, Facebook made two huge changes. It launched Newsfeed, and it opened itself up to anyone over the age of 13 with a valid email address. Keep talking about Newsfeed and the significance of photographs when it comes, for example, to the issue of privacy and what Mark Zuckerberg understood. So I think that Zuck had a clearer understanding of these issues than I gave him credit for at the time. His notion of collecting everyone in the world on one network, you know, had elements in it of virtue. You could see that there were cases, as with the Women's March or Black Lives Matter or the March for Our Lives, where you could use a network like that to organize people for good. The problem with it is that the way Mark did it, the way he did all of these things was to eliminate friction. His notion was he didn't want people thinking about posts. He just wanted them scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And by eliminating the friction, he eliminated essentially the opportunity for people to adapt to what he was doing. He eliminated really opportunities for creativity, for contemplation and debate. And in doing so, he really has undermined the social fabric of the country. And it started so innocently. Photo tagging doesn't seem like a big deal, but it does trigger this need for social reciprocity, which is essentially involuntary in us. And it becomes a habit. They send you a notification. You think the notification is personal. It's from an AI. And it's there to provoke you. And it provokes you enough to create a habit. And for most of us, the habit becomes an addiction. And I say it's an addiction because ask yourself this. I mean, Amy, when do you check your smartphone first thing in the morning? Is it before you pee or while you're peeing? Because for most of us, that's the range, right? We, nobody waits until after they're done. And so at the end of the day, once they have us addicted, they own us. And then after that, it's about the manipulation and amplification of hostile voices in order to keep this whole thing moving and profitable for them. And it started innocently, and it happened like 
a frog in water coming to a boil, right? We just didn't notice what was going on. And each new thing was more convenient than the last thing. And convenience is a narcotic. We're all hooked to it. And the trick here is we now have to recognize that, wait a minute, we actually have things in common. That meeting face-to-face, -face, making eye contact is actually really valuable. And that we shouldn't allow technology to control our lives. And I don't want to be, you know, the the negative person here because at the end of the day it's not about technology there's nothing wrong with social media or search the issue is this business model we can have social media we can have all these things we like without all the harm but we have to have regulation and it's got to be antitrust for competitive reasons and then you have to eliminate this massive market and people's most intimate private data I mean these companies act as though they're doctors and when the doctor inspects your liver that they then own your liver. I mean that's ridiculous. Companies should, our data should be a human right. It should not be there for third parties to treat as an asset and to commercialize. They should not touch it. Nobody should be making any kind of mark in it any more than you're allowed to make a market in your kidneys or your legs. Facebook has declared a stance uh, about misinformation and has claimed to have instituted various protocols to wipe it from its site in order to keep people, quote, safe and informed uh, about coronavirus. And they have uttered this piety, misleading health content is particularly bad for our community. Do you find any evidence to support that the company is doing Anything to curb misinformation? Facebook is acting to fight misinformation. Some of the steps that they have taken, such as giving free advertisements to the World Health Organization or creating the COVID Information Center, are useful and commendable steps. But the truth is they are not taking the key steps in terms of redesigning their social media algorithm and providing transparency to all users by correcting the record that could really end this problem, that could really at least decrease the reach of health misinformation by between 80 to 90 percent, that could decrease the number of people that believe misinformation by 50 percent. And the best way to, to put this is Facebook's algorithm, the core of how Facebook works, is if these health misinformation super spreaders are the Pablo Escobars, they're the ones producing all of this um, harmful content. The Facebook algorithm is the smuggler. It's the one that smuggles this bad content and puts it on people's phones so people see this misinformation. The steps Facebook is taking are like building one drug abuse center here in this neighborhood but it's not actually solving the core problem, which is its algorithm. And there we can say Facebook isn't acting and taking this issue as seriously as they claim to be. I would argue that the core problem isn't the algorithm. The core problem is that the algorithm is the goose that lays the golden egg and that Facebook could make changes to it, but would in so doing cut into its own traffic 
and the amount of time people spend on Facebook and cost it dollars. That they've made the decision not to make structural changes because it will impede their growth and their revenue. Is that just a paranoid fantasy? No, I would say that you are 100% right. Essentially, because the algorithm is what helps Facebook keep people addicted and make money, that's why Facebook does not move towards um, fixing it structurally. But I don't think that's the only reason. I also think that there's another reason here when we talk about misinformation more broadly speaking, which is that Facebook's executives, Facebook's leaders are afraid of challenging certain political actors, particularly authoritarian regimes and actors that use misinformation and have used misinformation to come to power. And Facebook's leadership, instead of putting the health of society first, is number one, putting its financial gains first, but number two, is not willing to challenge those bad actors because it fears the consequences of regulation or other steps that can be taken. All right, Fetty, I don't think I'm quite angry and desperate enough yet. So I just want to discuss one other dimension of this, and that is that the data that you have produced represents only half the problem, right? Because your studies concern only public Facebook pages, and there's this whole universe of private pages as well. Can you tell me about them? Yes. So most of us know what public pages are. You can like them, and then you start getting content in your newsfeed from these pages. And we found that 43% of the views going to these health misinformation spreading websites were coming from Facebook pages. But then you have a big portion, and it looks to be growing, that comes from whether it's people's private profiles, but more dangerously, these secret groups that Facebook now allows users to form. And these are groups that can have up to hundreds of thousands of members but our investigation and others, we can't look inside of these groups on Facebook. And what we're beginning to notice based on anecdotal evidence is bad actors are more and more beginning to use these secret groups to add people to them and to use them to spread misinformation and also election-related disinformation. And Mark Zuckerberg after the Cambridge Analytica scandal and the Mueller report and what happened in 2016 made the announcement that the platform will do more to fight the problem of disinformation, but also made the announcement that Facebook was moving more to these closed groups and these encrypted messaging tools. Facebook also owns WhatsApp. And what we've been seeing is that as Facebook has begun to sh create these closed spaces on its platforms that cannot be observed, that cannot be investigated, that cannot be held accountable, it's creating that space for these bad actors to again come out and influence our politics, influence people's health. And Facebook is not doing anything to mitigate the threat that is being created by these secret groups. All right, I want to come back finally to just a previous answer. Uh, we were discussing Facebook's conflict of interest and the algorithm it depends on. What specifically could it do to that algorithm if its principal interests were not its revenue growth, but the well-being of the public? What specific steps could it take to eliminate or reduce this problem? That's the core question. And we propose 
two short-term solutions. The first is what we call detoxing the algorithm. And what this would mean is that number one, let's say a fact checker or the World Health Organization or the CDC makes a clear correction about the idea that wearing masks could help decrease the spread of the virus. Facebook can go to every person on the platform who was targeted on the platform and say, hey, user X, hey, Bob, last week you saw this post that claimed that masks would suffocate you. In fact, here's a correction from the World Health Organization. Here's a correction from the CDC. And academic studies show that if Facebook were just to train the algorithm to do that for independently fact-checked pieces of misinformation, it would decrease the belief in disinformation by 50%. The other step then in terms of detox is when you have these systematic spreaders of misinformation that Facebook knows are abusing its system and sharing a lot of bad content, Facebook could redesign the algorithm to ensure that these bad actors are downgraded. And of course, you would want checks and balances. This is why we call for democratic regulation of the platform. But by taking those steps together, Facebook could begin disincentivizing number one bad actors from spreading misinformation, and the algorithm would begin to err more on the side of facts than on the side of amplifying the bad content. In the long term, what Facebook needs to do is And this is where not only Avaz, but governments now around the world are beginning to demand that Facebook is more transparent about how its algorithm works so that researchers from across the world can come in and tweak the algorithm so that it does not continually give preference to sensationalist content, to conspiracy theories, and to bad actors. And so that would require an audit, and then it would require reprogramming of the algorithm. And although our hope had been for the last three, four years that public pressure and campaigning and good people inside Facebook would take this step independently, it's clear now that we will need to push Congress and we will need to push the European Commission and other actors to force Facebook to move in that direction. You may have heard about the recent advertisers boycott of social media this month. It's called Stop Hate for Profit, and more than 500 companies have joined the campaign so far including huge brands like Unilever, Coca-Cola, Starbucks, McDonald's, Honda. The campaign's been driven by the NAACP, Color of Change, and the Anti-Defamation League. Why is this campaign happening now? Well, I think we've given you ample evidence on this podcast of how hate has a home field advantage in social media. Per the recent Wall Street Journal expose, 64% of the extremist groups that were joined on Facebook were due to Facebook's own recommendation algorithms. We know that Boogaloo Boys groups which refer to Civil War II, were recommended by Facebook and actually led to a federal officer being killed in Oakland, California. I think why this campaign is happening now is that people are fed up. They know that there is a problem. You know, many people can't quite put their finger on it, but they have seen so much damage and polarization and outrage. And this is true across the board in social media. We've seen how YouTube, some of the top verbs that are listed in the titles on videos, are dismantles, debunks, snaps, realizes, screams, obliterates, shreds, defies, owns, confronts, insults. This is the background radiation of hate 
that wins in the attention economy. The Center for Humane Technology is also advising the campaign, and you can add your own name to their petition at stoppaidforprofit.org. So what's the significance of this development? Could this boycott actually lead to meaningful change? Well, soon after the campaign launched, on Friday the 26th of June, Facebook's stock dropped by more than 8% and lost $55 billion in shareholder value. This had meaningful change in getting advertisers on the phone. Now, obviously, Facebook stock climbed back up to its all-time high just a week later. Still, nothing has actually moved the needle as much as this boycott has. We shouldn't have to resort to using the moral compass of a few advertisers and corporations to force Facebook's hand into doing more good faster to reverse some of these problems. But that's unfortunately the situation we've been in. Regulation, ironically, takes years to pass. So what's interesting about this development is how quickly you can move when you can get the moral compass of advertisers aligned behind a direction and say definitively that Facebook has not done enough in the ways that its platform intrinsically creates these problems. So would this lead to significant change? Well, judging by Facebook's own words, no, not at all. Nick Clegg, Facebook's VP of Global Affairs, wrote an op-ed, quote, Platforms like Facebook hold up a mirror to society. Well, if you listen to literally any episode of this podcast, you'll understand why that's absolute nonsense. Mark Zuckerberg, for his part, reportedly told his own employees last week that, quote, My guess is that all these advertisers will be back on the platform soon enough. Facebook has more than 8 million advertisers on its platform. And no one or two or even 10 advertisers make up even 1% of Facebook's $70 billion a year in advertising revenue. There's no 80-20 rule where just a small number of advertisers make up a large fraction of the revenue because there's just millions and millions of long-tail businesses and individuals and political campaigns that are all advertising on Facebook at the same time. This means that it's hard for a boycott to have a financial impact on Facebook's bottom line. That said, what matters here isn't the financial impact as much as changing the public conversation that what is happening right now with Facebook and the amount of polarization and divisive and outrageification of our societies is not okay. This demonstrates why regulation and policy are so important. Zuckerberg's primary orientation over and over again seems to be to ensure that Facebook does not get regulated. Supposedly, the reason why Facebook has taken such a laissez-faire stance on all these issues is due to the centrality of one person, Joel Kaplan, who sits at the top of Facebook's public policy arm. As I understand it, there are many teams within Facebook who are working on integrity efforts, efforts to catch more hate speech, to catch the Boogaloo Boys, things like this, and that those efforts, some of them, are getting blocked because ultimately the interests of Facebook's government relations teams takes priority over the interests of those who are working on the ground closest to the harms. And, you know, the people who are working hard on the integrity teams inside of Facebook and Twitter and YouTube are closest to some of those harms because they run the queries that say, well, how bad is hate or racist speech in these different jurisdictions or zip codes or countries on a daily basis? And knowing what those harms are, they are the ones who are devising solutions that they think will help. But if they don't have the power to enact those better policies because they're overruled by the government relations team because they don't want to be regulated, we're never going to solve these problems. I think it's instructive that Facebook's own civic integrity team as I've understood it, is actually funded by the antitrust budget, the part of the company whose budget is so that the company doesn't get broken up. Now, one of the interesting things here has to do with organizational structure and chain of command. In Twitter's case, the civic integrity teams responsible for fact-checking political kinds of speech actually have more power than the public policy team. There's a great article called Inside Twitter's Decision to Fact-Check Trump's Tweets 
within Twitter, the teams responsible for trust and safety had the first authority to flag his tweet. And it was flagged first as needing a warning label. And then it was only after that that it went to Twitter's VP of Global Public Policy and its top liaison to government. In other words, with Twitter, the system is set up that way to keep enforcement decisions independent from the teams responsible for PR and government relations. In contrast, Facebook routes critical policy decisions through their policy chief, Joel Kaplan, who's also the company's main man in Washington, an arrangement that its former chief security officer recently criticized. That's Alex Demos. In other words, how do we make sure that there's a clean divide between the separation of church and state inside of an organization, which mirrors the same thing that we had to do in journalism? You would never want the New York Times to withhold a news story that was critical of, let's say, one of its advertisers, because it was critical of one of its advertisers. You would want the editorial team to simply say what was true, independent of whether it would harm their revenue. Well, in this case, Facebook is beholden to the whims of their government relations team, which are equivalent to a newspaper's advertising department. Integrity teams, which are the equivalent of its editorial teams, are unable to make decisions that go against the values of the governments in which they operate. Again, this is so that Facebook can avoid being regulated. So one of the things that we need here is for companies like Facebook and Twitter to simply enforce the existing policies that they have and not give exceptions to the loudest and most powerful voices on their platforms. The advertisers that are involved in this boycott are still a long way from doing lasting damage to Facebook's bottom line. But nonetheless, this could be a turning point because a lot of pressure is actually now being applied. And for the first time, Mark and Cheryl have had to be on the phone to figure out what they can do to bring those advertisers back. And it's certainly moving the public's perception that there really is a problem here. Of course, the real problem is with their business model. And advertisers can't criticize that because they also depend on it. Even pulling their spend off of Facebook, where else can they put their advertising spend? One of the monopoly and antitrust issues here is that there isn't another place where you can actually reach your customers. And in a post-COVID era, an argument that Facebook might make is that advertisers actually need Facebook to use their micro-targeting capacities to drive up demand and restart the economy. So that's one of the problems here is that Facebook has become entangled with the actual economy itself. Small and medium-sized businesses use Facebook to reach their customers. So there's much more to say here, but we just wanted to express our support for the overall movement in this direction, and that so much more needs to be done, especially going into this next election. But one thing we'd like to tell the journalists and those who are covering these topics is let's not be surprised when we find that there's yet another Facebook extremist group recommending a civil war or killing people on the streets, or inciting racist violence. That would be kind of like writing news story headlines about, oh, we found a little bit more CO2 coming out of this Exxon factory, or we count a little bit more methane coming out of this Chevron facility. In the same way, we shouldn't be surprised to see more outrage or polarization or addiction coming out of technology companies, because that's the DNA of their operation. That's why in the long run, we're going to need something much bigger than stop paper profit and go after the business model itself. As an independent production that depends on the direct financial support of the audience, Best of Left is as vulnerable as everyone else in this time of economic uncertainty. When people can't go to work or get laid off, non-essential expenses are the first to go. We perfectly understand that. So if you can support the show directly on Patreon, that would be amazing and fantastic, and we thank you for that. But there is also a way you can support the show without it costing you any money. So if you're doing any shopping from the big box store in the sky, you can use our affiliate 
affiliate link and we'll get a cut of the price from everything you purchase. Our affiliate links for the US, UK, and Canadian stores are in the show notes on our website and on the device you're using to listen right now. If you use our link and you're taken to either the homepage or our Alexa skill page, then you have done it right. There's nothing additional you need to do, and we will benefit from the shopping you do after that. If you take just a moment to bookmark our link to your country's store on your browser, or even delete the mobile app on your phone and add that link as a button in its place, you can enormously help us get through this health and economic crisis just by doing your regular online shopping. Thanks so much for your support. A lot of what we're saying sounds like it's just this one-sided doom and gloom. Like, oh my God, technology is just ruining the world and it's ruining kids. And it's like, no, <laughs> it's confusing because it's simultaneous utopia and dystopia. Like I can hit a button on my phone and a car shows up in 30 seconds and I can go exactly where I need to go. That is magic. That's amazing. When we were making the like button, our entire motivation was, can we spread positivity and love in the world? The idea that fast forward to today and teens would be getting depressed when they don't have enough likes or it could be leading to political polarization was nowhere on our radar. I don't think these guys set out to be evil. It's just the business model that has a problem. You could shut down the service and destroy whatever it is, $20 billion of shareholder value and get sued and but you can't, in practice, put the genie back in the bottle. You can make some tweaks, but at the end of the day, you've got to grow revenue and usage quarter over quarter. It's The bigger it gets, the harder it is for anyone to change. What I see is a bunch of people who are trapped by a business model, an economic incentive, and shareholder pressure that makes it almost impossible to do something else. I think we need to accept that it's okay for companies to be focused on making money. What's not okay is when there's no regulation, no rules, and no competition, and the companies are acting as sort of de facto governments, and then they're saying, well, we can regulate ourselves. I mean, that's just a lie. That's just ridiculous. Financial incentives kind of run the world. So any solution to this problem has to realign the financial incentives. I, there's no fiscal reason for these companies to change. And that is why I think we need regulation. The phone company has tons of sensitive data about you, and we have a lot of laws that make sure they don't do the wrong things. We have almost no laws around digital privacy, for example. We could tax data collection and processing the same way that you, for example, pay your water bill by monitoring the amount of water that you use. You tax these companies on the data assets that they have. It gives them a fiscal reason to not acquire every piece of data on the planet the law runs way behind on these things. But what I know is the current situation exists not for the protection of users, but for the protection of the rights and privileges of these gigantic, incredibly wealthy companies. Are we always going to defer to the richest, most powerful people? Or are we ever going to say, you know, there are times when there is a national interest. There are times when the interests of people, of users, is actually more important than the profits of somebody who's already a billionaire. These markets undermine democracy and they undermine freedom, and they should be outlawed. This is not a radical proposal. There are other markets that we outlaw. We outlaw markets in human organs. We outlaw markets in human slaves. 
because they have inevitable destructive consequences. We live in a world in which a tree is worth more financially dead than alive, in a world in which a whale is worth more dead than alive. For so long as our economy works in that way and corporations go unregulated, they're going to continue to destroy trees, to kill whales, to mine the earth and, and to continue to pull oil out of the ground, even though we know it is destroying the planet and we know that it's going to leave a worse world for future generations. This is short-term thinking based on this religion of profit at all costs, as if somehow magically each corporation acting in its selfish interest is going to produce the, the best result. This has been affecting the environment for a long time. What's frightening and what hopefully is the last straw that will make us wake up as a civilization to how flawed this theory has been in the first place is to see that now we're the tree, we're the whale. Our attention can be mined. We are more profitable to a corporation if we're spending time staring at a screen, staring at an ad, than if we're spending that time living our life in a rich way. And so we're seeing the results of that. We're seeing corporations using powerful artificial intelligence to outsmart us and figure out how to pull our attention toward the things they want us to look at rather than things that are most consistent with our goals and our values and our lives. the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism work to overcome racist voter suppression in yet another election without the full Voting Rights Act. As of the publishing of this episode, there are exactly 42 days until Election Day. That's six weeks, a month and a half. To make sure every one of those days count, we've launched our 2020 Election Action Guide, which we're calling Voting is Not Enough, because it's just not. All of the segments and information can be accessed from the Voting is Not Enough banner at bestoftheleft.com or directly at bestoftheleft.com slash 2020 action. We want to start today by acknowledging the devastating loss of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. May her memory be a blessing and a revolution. Justice Ginsburg, using the law as her tool, dedicated her life to making our society more equal and to protecting rights of all kinds, including voting rights. When her conservative colleagues gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013, she famously wrote in her passionate dissent, quote, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet, end quote. As we face yet another national election without the key protections of the Voting Rights Act, we have to work a hundred times harder to ensure marginalized groups get access to the ballot. New strict voter ID laws, proof of citizenship laws, increased purging of voter rolls, increased closing of polling places in predominantly poor Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities. These are the fallouts of losing the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. So how do we overcome these racist and oppressive hurdles? Here are a few ways. Number one, confirm voter registration and talk to purged voters. As we mentioned in our last segment, voter registration is key, but it's not just about getting new people to register, though that's important. It's also about making sure registered voters haven't been purged and have updated their address or name change. Having an updated registration can be the difference between a regular ballot or a provisional ballot on election day. With voter registration deadlines coming up fast, commit to helping people register and check their status. Visit vote.org for all the links you need, or visit nationalvoterregistrationday.org and look under resources for the toolkit for individuals. 
This year, Grassroots Democrats HQ and Field Team 6 have made it possible to volunteer to phone or text bank actual purged voters in key states and help them get re-registered. Many people never know they've been purged until it's too late, so help alert these voters to their status and get them registered again. Go to fieldteam6.org, that's fieldteam and the number 6.org, and check their calendar of events for opportunities. Number two, help people get necessary voter IDs. Voter ID laws aren't going away anytime soon, so Vote Riders has begun providing voter ID assistance to help every American cast a ballot. Vote Riders will help you identify the documents you need to get an ID, request and pay for the documents, pay the DMV fees, and even drive you to the DMV for free. Call or text their helpline at 844-338-8743 or go to voteriders.org slash free help to submit an online form and get started. If you don't need an ID, you can become a volunteer to help make sure voters know the information they need and or donate to support their sadly necessary work. Number three, increase black voter turnout. The NAACP's Black Voices Change Lives is using indirect relational voter turnout to mobilize black voters this fall. This means engaged black voters call unengaged black voters in specific battleground states where the data shows that the black vote is the determining factor in the outcome. If you don't identify as Black, you are still welcome to volunteer. Go to blackvoiceschangelives.org for more. Number four, become a poll worker. As we've previously mentioned, becoming a poll worker is one of the most effective things you can do to help fight the closing of polling places and reduce long lines. Go to workelections.com to find out how to sign up in your state, or go to morethanavote.org, which is specifically recruiting poll workers in heavily Black districts across the country. We know the Supreme Court nomination and Senate races are at the top of everyone's mind right now, but fighting voter suppression is essential to making sure we have a shot at saving our democracy come November. We'll be focusing on the Senate races next time, but we've included links in the show notes today to get you started. Use the time saved to ponder how we came to have a system where the passing of one 87-year-old woman caused tens of millions of people to be gripped with justifiable fear and existential dread. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources, and once again, this segment is available on the Voting Is Not Enough page at bestoftheleft.com slash 2020action. So if making sure disenfranchised voters have a voice this November is important to you, be sure to spread the word about working to overcome racist voter suppression in yet another election without the full Voting Rights Act via social media, or uh, maybe call a few friends instead, so that others in your network can spread the word too. Do you see the breeze blowing? Can you feel the winds have changed? Do you smell the scent of roses or does rotten air remain? Do you feel the time has come when we rectify what's wrong, putting all where it belongs as we stand up and be strong? Because it's time to make a difference in this fickle world of change. We are in a time where we've sort of accepted the unrestricted, unregulated mining of the human consciousness, the harvesting of human attention. You know, we are the resource, and I think it takes its toll. And I think there's a particular concern that I have with the concentration of the power to do so in a smaller number of entities, one or two or three, monopolists or oligopolists or whatever word you want to do. And that comes from my concern that the monopolization of attention markets historically has been a extremely 
potent and powerful source of both political power and commercial power that is hard to hold accountable and essentially vests a small number of actors with a great number of the powers of government. And these powers haven't been exercised fully. Obviously, we've had totalitarian regimes which seized that power or or the Soviet Union and used it to every extent possible. But we're building the mechanism for it when we allow the monopoly form to come to dominate attention markets. We're creating the infrastructure for control of the masses. And I think that should be a concern to anyone with a knowledge of the history or a concern for democratic governance. People look at proposals saying we have to break up the big tech companies in response to problems like misinformation, polarization, addiction, mental health, isolation. And they say that's not going to solve the problem. So like, why should we do this break them up thing? But you're Mm -hmm. pointing to a more dangerous, different thing, which is the pure consolidation of power into single entities creates this kind of temptation with the government to sort of want to be in bed with that power and to kind of commandeer it or to be in relationship to it. Why is the concentration of economic power just on its own, even if it was steel or railroads, linked to things like populism, extremism, or fascism? With the rise of concentrated power and monopoly across the economy, not just in tech, it also tends to lead to long-lasting inequality. And the reason is that the monopoly and oligopoly forms tend to aggregate profit towards itself as opposed to spread it out. And one of the things you saw in the 30s was an enormous suffering in the middle classes, which created this appetite for stronger leaders who were going to, you know, finally read the country back to where it needed to go. And I don't think there's any doubt, not just in the United States, but around the world, you're seeing in this extraordinary rise of populist. And much of it is actually anchored in kind of an anti-monopoly spirit or a sense that the wealthy are getting everything. And it's very familiar from the 1930s. I'll give you a few examples. The German movement that led ultimately to the Third Reich was in in many ways almost an anti-globalization protest. And the most interesting thing I think about someone like Hitler and other leaders of the Third Reich is that they both catered to the populist anger, said they were going to sort of take on the global economy on their behalf, but also made friends and made friendly with the great monopolists. So they managed this balancing act. And and I think you see it in our current times. Look at a country like Brazil, where you have this rise to power of authoritarian government again after, after decades. Now, you know, right now it's elected, but it could get worse. And a lot of that was premised on the idea that there's this huge economic crash. Brazil had given all too much to the monopolies. Everything was about globalization. And again, the leadership is trying to do this thing where they both weirdly promise the working classes a new destiny, a return to greathood, a national salvation, but at the same time are also catering to and uh, gaining support from monopolies in terms of we'll keep the labor unions down, we will create new markets for you to explore and so forth. So that's that's the pattern I think we need to look out for. And, you know, this doesn't directly relate to the intentional economy, except in the following form, which is I think that the more monopolized the channels of communication are, the easier it is to access attention and control it, you know, the greater the possibilities for using those channels as well for, you know, having a, a media or social media that is friendly to government become compounded. And that's the kind of thing I'm worried about. And so when you hear about, you know, Warren wants to break a big tech or people want to prevent big tech from just having too much power, I think we have to think about the political concerns and not just the nitty gritty of what would that do for competition and would that really help or make things better. It's a sort of more macro concern 
about concentrated power as an evil in itself, as a historic danger mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that we're talking about. Yeah. It's almost like antitrust should be renamed anti-inequality or anti-populism or anti-fascism because essentially the concern about concentrated power is not even about the content of you know what the technology is doing, although there's a relationship there we can get into, but more just the way that that poses dangers for geopolitical risk, World War III type scenarios, not trying to fan the flames of fear, but just that we've seen patterns that create those kinds of risks in the past. And I think antitrust and big tech and all of that sounds like kind of a boring policy conversation. I often think just per the kind of Frank Luntz sort of view of the world of language, don't call it an estate tax, call it a death tax, because then people get riled up about it. Let's not call it antitrust, let's call it a anti-fascist sort of move? How do we prevent these things and consolidated forms of power from getting too dangerous? Yes, I think that's right. I think the highest and best calling of antitrust, you know, it's an old word and probably a better one, uh, would be anti-monopoly or private power control, something like that. And, you know, in some ways, tech might be, I mean, people are aware of tech. It's right in their faces. It seems to have a lot of power. I don't deny that. But some of the other industries can be just as bad, pharma, broadband. You know, why do we accept a broadband monopoly? I think broadband does more to, uh, broadband and and cell phones, which are both concentrated, do more to take money from the middle classes Mm -hmm. than, I mean, you think about the fact the bills are double or triple what they are in other parts of the world, and you think, and that in its way is a form of private taxation, just allowing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this huge part of the household budget to be hollowed out by broad. You need broadband to kind of be a citizen that is able to be uh, productive and you need a cell phone as well. And uh, we've let those things become this massive part of the household budget and uh, they don't need to be at those prices. We, the margins are absurd as anybody who takes a careful look knows. I want to be careful with this next thought, but as you were talking about the way that monopolies sort of cozy up to to government. It did make me once again return to thinking about Facebook and their policy, which is to say, you know, we will fact check your advertisements unless you're part of the government. If you're a politician, it's all fair game. Yeah, I have been a critic of Facebook's advertising policy. And the worst version of it, the most terrifying version is that at the margins, they see doing this as a way to stay in the good graces of government. Yeah. particularly the current government. And, you know, there's a lot a lot of other reasons, oh, we don't want to, but they, they've never explained why they're in this game at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is one of the questions. Say more about that. So Facebook runs political advertising and, as you said, allows it to be maliciously false so long as it's political advertising. If it's non-political, if it's like a pill that promises to make you lose 100 pounds, they won't run that because it's unless you can back it up. But they will let you run something that says Joe Biden paid Ukraine a billion dollars not to prosecute his son or something like that, some straight out lie, uh, as long as it's political. And the worst version of it is the the concern that, well, the federal government has a lot of ways of hurting Facebook. Facebook wants to get along with them. And on the margins, they're like, man, maybe we should just keep running these political ads because they could get out of the business of political ads altogether. That's what Twitter's done. And Pinterest and, and uh, Microsoft, Microsoft and, and LinkedIn and a whole set of the companies. Yeah. And um, in fact, one of the ways they defend themselves is by saying, well, we're not doing this for the money because look, it makes such a tiny sliver of money compared to the, the, the rest of our revenue. Which I believe, I do believe that some people might be more skeptical, but I, I believe that. Well, rather it's saying from there, then it's not going to hurt them much to turn it off. Right, exactly. But there are some people who are skeptical, oh, they really want the money. But I don't think that's right. I think it is at the margin. And, you know, you have this kind of thing in yourself. It's like, well, maybe why make an extra enemy? 
why not keep a friend? And that friend being the executive branch. Being the executive branch, being this particular White House, which relies on, like no other White House before it, on defamatory and deliberately malicious, malicious lies in its advertising. That is, for some reason, their, their go-to. And so not banning their favorite forms of advertising. And more generally, the whole idea, when you think about it, you have this one company and you know a bunch of people and they their decisions about advertising rules can have such an effect on the presidency that everybody cares about. They're, they're just these little, you know, private rules, no oversight, no public involvement has more effect than any legislation or anything else. It's pretty crazy and scary. And the idea, if it's possible, that even they feel any pressure to keep running political ads, I think is, you know, kind of outlines the cause for concern in a nutshell. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, discussing how Facebook has destructive externalities, just like industry has toxic waste spills. On the media, looked at Facebook's role in spreading misinformation and conspiracy theories about COVID-19. Your undivided attention discussed the recent advertiser boycott of Facebook. We heard a small clip from The Social Dilemma about the destructive nature of Facebook's business model, and I cannot stress enough how much I encourage everyone to watch The Social Dilemma in full on Netflix. Your undivided attention discussed the nature of concentrated control over society's mode of communication and where that can lead. Now, all of that was available to everyone, but I'm experimenting with a new method of delivering bonus content to members. So members already heard two additional clips right here in the show that everyone else missed out on. There was a clip from The Michael Brooks Show hosting a conversation about the nature of Silicon Valley and how the business model of being the intermediary turned the wide-open web into a series of big-tech fiefdoms. And secondly, there was a TED Talk from a former foreign service officer and Facebook insider who describes why it was easier to speak with outspoken anti-Western clerics and suspected terrorists in Kenya than to communicate across political lines on Facebook in the U.S., and why her efforts to reform Facebook from the inside failed. For non-members, those bonus clips are still linked in the show notes, and they are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find it if you make the effort. But to hear those clips and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed as part of regular episodes, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership. Every request is granted, no questions asked, let money be no barrier to you accessing additional content from the show. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling in, responding to Aaron's voicemail on mythology, etc. But I've been struggling to respond to this for a couple of days to try not to be a Debbie Downer. When I think of mythology, and I've been thinking about this a lot, but I haven't, I haven't done any research. Most mythology, Greek mythology, other mythologies, they always talk about rising above and fighting against something, and that is always a 
a polarization where you're overcoming usually another group of people or another god or another thing, right? It's not usually, and maybe I'm wrong and maybe I'm just not exposed to mythology that shows people working hand in hand. And I'd love to see the mythology of the United States and the stories of myth and the reality of the United States kind of rewritten. But I don't know how you do that in a country where polarization is so incredibly strong, whether it be politics or not sports. I mean, all you need to do is go to a sports bar and, and, and look at the, the two sides screaming and yelling at each other. And I'm just not sure how to do that, like to even begin to conceptualize what that mythology might look like. I think it'd be fantastic. I'd love for everyone to, to sit around holding hands and, and being able to sing together. But where is this, is this people that can even do that? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. So not to be a Debbie Downer, but that's kind of what goes through my head. And, and that's kind of what I struggle with. So love to hear what other people think about what that could look like. Forget about how we get there, but what would that look like? What do you envision when you think about a rewritten mythology story for the United States. Thanks. Stay awesome. Wear a mask. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work on the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can send us a voice memo by email or simply record a message at 202 999 so as I said at the beginning, we have two major new features slash changes to the show happening today. It was an utter coincidence. I just came up with these two ideas close together, and they're both being implemented today. So the first, as I explained briefly, members get extra long shows, and for non-members, I'm actually going to shrink it down a little bit. I'm aiming for maybe like 40 minutes of clips plus all the voicemails and comments and, and you know, my, my final thoughts at the end, making it just like an hour long show. I, th- I think that's what regular listeners sort of expect from a, an occasional, you know, weekly or, or biweekly show, you know, about an hour long is sort of normal for people. And so I, I actually hope new listeners will have an easier time diving in if they see, oh, you know, it's an hour, like that's a normal show. If they look and they see, oh, it's an hour and 20 minutes. Ooh, that's a long show. Uh, and so I want to make it accessible to new listeners, totally feature packed for everyone, you know, 40 minutes of content plus the, you know, the final wrap up with voicemails and all that as normal, but in an hour long package instead of hour and 20 minutes. And then for members who want more, they get more as they have been getting more for for a long time, just in a slightly different package, combined with the new feature I have, which is the financial hardship memberships, meaning money is no longer an excuse. If you want the extra content and, and you can't afford it, doesn't matter. Now you can have it. So that is the first update of the day. But the second update 
is real off the wall. So I was talking to the members on on a bonus episode recently about this multi-year mystery I've been grappling with about why voicemail numbers have been dropping. Ten years ago, it was easy for me to play a half dozen voicemails per episode. And these days, if I get one to three emails a week, that's great. I feel lucky to have gotten three, you know, or, or three voicemails. And so I was discussing this on the member show, and then Kim wrote in, gave her thoughts. Kim writes, I just wanted to mention that I think the reason fewer people do voicemails now is the same reason fewer people make phone calls now. There are just so many other venues and forums where people can talk and discuss in writing. And you get responses from other people right away. You don't have to wait a week for your message to appear on the show and then another week for the responses, etc. It's just simply cumbersome now and people don't bother, unquote. And I don't know if... That's what's going on with listeners. I've had a a whole slew of theories that back in the Obama years, people were more excited about politics and wanted to talk about it, and now they're depressed, or the topics I used to cover were a little bit more broad, a little bit more simple, and the stuff I cover now might be a little more niche, a little bit more complex, so maybe people have less to say now than they did then. But I'm starting to think that all those theories were wrong, and that something Kim said sparked the idea of what's really happening. Fewer people make phone calls now across the board for all reasons. As a society, we have been trained that you can do pretty much anything without having to make a phone call. Lots of things that you could only do previously by making phone calls. And that got me thinking about not just that societal trend, but what's called phone phobia, which exhibits itself in a whole range of ways, from extreme to mild, but even a mild version of phone phobia could be enough to make you not call into, you know, a voicemail into a podcast, because people don't like talking on the phone, they definitely don't like speaking publicly, and calling in a voicemail to a public podcast is kind of like a combination of the two of those things. So you can understand the hesitancy people would have. And phone phobia, it's, uh, it's generational. Like the younger generation has it at a much greater degree than older generations. So you can see how this trend might play out in a voicemail section on a podcast where I get 10% of the voicemails that I used to get 10 years ago. So it's an interesting phenomenon. But then what's the result of that? Whose voices then get to be heard in a political conversation based around voicemails. I coined a term today, I, I called it the Alanification of the voicemail segment. Alan, who we unsurprisingly heard from today, calls in all the time. He's a super nice guy, super supportive of the show, really outgoing, totally goofy, and apparently has no compunction whatsoever, calling in and leaving voicemails, giving his political thoughts, saying a bunch of goofy stuff, joking around. And so because that is his personality type, he has no problem calling into the voicemail line. But then that's kind of what we're left with is is that people who have 
the right kind of personality are the only ones who get to be part of the conversation. Alan is just sort of the extreme version of that, and I think he might even agree with that assessment. It's certainly not a criticism. There's nothing wrong with him. It's just it's just that he happens to be, uh, let's say, blessed with the personality that is conducive to calling in to the voicemail line of a podcast, for whatever that's worth. So then I had an idea to use a feature of my fancy new transcription software, and this feature is only a few weeks old. They just released a slate of synthetic voices that can say whatever you want them to say for whatever reason you might want them to say it. Talk about living in a simultaneous utopia and dystopia. So for lack of a better term, I'm calling it an e-voicemail. And my first thought, I had this idea, I, you know, ran a little experiment with it. My first thought was about all the drawbacks. I mean, these voices are not perfect yet, obviously. They sound human-ish, but they sometimes slip into the uncanny valley just a little bit. So I worried what people would think. Would they be really, really annoyed with putting these robot voices? I mean, they're better robot voices than you know, having your computer, like, read text to you. They sound a lot more humanistic than that. But would people be irritated by it conceptually? Would they be irritated by it auditorily? I mean, there could be any number of things, any number of problems that people would have about it. But then I thought more deeply about the upsides. So people don't like talking on the phone. They don't like public speaking. We address that. I also mentioned that this is uh, a generational phenomenon. And so if older people are more likely to be willing to call in, then that just means we only get to hear from older people and we hear far less from younger generations. That seems like a big blind spot we're creating for ourselves. There's been a perpetual gender gap in the voicemail section, and it doesn't take too much imagination to understand the socialization that has encouraged more men than women to be proudly outspoken with their opinions over the years. But that gender gap does not seem to exist in the emails that I receive. Also, politics is simply complicated and nuanced. I don't need to tell you that. You know that. And so people want to be sure to say exactly what they mean and to not misspeak out of forgetfulness or nervousness or whatever. I've, I've heard from people for years and years and years by email. They write in and say, I'm writing you an email because I want to make sure I get my thoughts right. Whereas if I left a voicemail, I'm worried I wouldn't say what I mean. And, you know, others have just said they simply can't call, that the need to write their thoughts is so strong that they feel not worried they might misspeak, but like unable to put their thoughts together when speaking and they really need to be able to write it down. Nothing wrong with that. It's just the way some people are. So are the robot voices a little odd, a little off-putting? Yeah, of course they are. But does the upside of opening up the conversation to countless new voices with unique and interesting perspectives outweigh the downside. I certainly think that it does, and I hope that you agree. Here are the first three emails that I've received recently that you never would have heard about. You never would have heard from these people. You wouldn't have heard their comments or their nuanced thoughts, if not for e-voicemails. So first, uh, with a little caveat, I guess you did hear from Zach a little bit. I did read his email, and I read a tiny bit of his response, but you get a lot more out of it when, when you hear from it in full. 
So Zach, the theologian, wrote in asking for my thoughts on voting idealistically for the Green Party or fearfully for Biden. And I gave my take on a previous episode, and these are the responses that I received by email only. No responses by voicemail. Hi, Jay. This is Nicole. I have a couple of thoughts on your final comments to Zach for this episode. I agree with your comments about voting as a tool for change rather than emotionally. Rachel Maddow puts it this way, vote with your heart in the primary, vote with your head in November. Privilege is a trigger word for many, but the fact is that voting third party, especially in this election, is a privilege. Every marginalized group has suffered in one way or another under this administration, not to mention the thousands who have lost their lives due to his policies. More will suffer and more will die if he is re-elected. Voting for someone you know can't win for idealistic reasons ignores that reality. In November, vote for the candidate who has a chance of winning and who will do the most good. I also wanted to comment on your use of voting for the lesser of two evils. Please stop using this phrase. I have never voted for an ideal candidate, and neither has anyone else. Even if Zach votes for the Green Party candidate, I am sure there are some differences between what he wants and what their policies are. Using this old trope implies that there is an ideal candidate. The concept of voting for the lesser of two evils also implies that both candidates are evil. This gives people an excuse not to go out and vote. I don't know about you, but I heard a lot of, it doesn't matter, they are the same, during 2016. I would like to suggest using, I am voting for the better person. Say what you like about Biden, he is without a doubt the better person. Thanks for a great show. I have cut back significantly on my news consumption. Yours is one of the few shows I still follow. Stay well. Hello Jay, this is Zach the Theologian. I was chuffed to hear you respond to my email in your most recent podcast. I wanted to let you know how successful your reasoning was. You were right to point out that I was seeing my vote as an expression of my feelings. I had thought that voting for Hawkins would somehow trumpet to the world that this was my vision for the world. This is how I think the world should be. However, if I exercise my ability to be objective and distance myself from the decision, it becomes clear how useless such a scream into the void would be. Practically speaking, my vote would initiate no noticeable change in the world. Utilizing your methodology of a theory of change, However, I can see how a vote for Biden is the first step in the direction towards someday being able to actually vote for someone like Hawkins. It does still hurt a little to think that someone like Hawkins, or Sanders, is not able to be voted into office right now, but that is the world in which we live. I also really appreciate your clarification and appeal that this is the first step. That Biden is by no means the end of our journey to change our country for the better. This type of language and vision helps me feel better about participating on behalf of Biden. I also wanted you to know that I was in no way offended or put off by your rejection of my premise that voting is either fearful or idealistic. That is how I felt in the moment that I wrote that email, and I wrote to you in the hopes you could help me out of it. And you did. So thanks again for that. I now wonder if I would be an even better advocate for Biden, armed with your theory of change and my own experience about wanting to vote for Hawkins. I can't volunteer to help with voting as I have high-risk individuals in my home. But I can certainly tell my network of friends, family and colleagues virtually about why I am now supporting Biden even though I don't agree with all of his policies. Thank you for engaging with me, and I look forward to continuing to listen and support you and your team in your work. And this last message is in response to the much-talked-about episode, How a System of Power Defends Itself. Hi Jay, this is Heidi. 
Thank you for all the work you do to inform your listeners. I love your show. In your most recent episode, episode 1358 was mentioned, and I hadn't listened to it yet. So I went ahead and did so. It was fascinating. Not only in how Monk portrays Robin out of context, but also in Tom's reaction. Tom's reaction is the reaction from so many white men that I've personally experienced, either in conversation with people at work, or even in online comment sections. It makes my skin crawl. For context, I'm a white woman, and I've tried to examine my own relationship to privilege, and educate myself on how I can be a better ally. I remember that the first time I truly understood, as best I can, as a white woman, racism, and was able to empathize with black people in America, was when I experienced discrimination at work via sexism. My boss plainly said that certain colleagues were being given sales accounts because they were men with children, while the single women and gay men on the team were passed over, and the one woman who just had a baby on the team was told they were going to take accounts away from her because she needed to take care of her baby, and her plate was full. It was unbelievable. Having experience that helped me understand discrimination more broadly. White men, however, have nothing in their lives that can help them empathize with those who experience racism and discrimination. Here I mean white men generally, I know not all men are like this. When faced with it, they often, as you said, Darvo, and fail to even listen to the idea that they may be a part of systemic racism, or they give examples of hardships they believe they've faced, while completely misunderstanding how privilege works. They do not believe in privilege because that would challenge their place in society and everything they think they've earned. To those in power, equality often feels like oppression. I experience this the most with white conservative men. Just hearing Tom speak brought back all the childish, gross, ignorant white men like him that I've experienced. That coincidentally constantly interrupt and talk over me like Tom did to Robin, even after asking her a question. But I believe it stems from them having no place of shared experience to reach into, that would enable them to empathize. It frightens me because white men are the ones who have the most power in our country. How do you convince someone to believe in something that they've never seen or experienced in any way themselves? I think it's a huge obstacle to progress. Again, thank you for all the work you do and for always helping me expand my ideas in a meaningful way on various topics. So if you'd like to send a message to be played on the show, there's no special process. Just email me, j at bestofleft.com, and try to keep your message to around 300 words. That, that's a good amount of time. If you go a little bit over, it's not a big deal. I'll take it from there. Now, look, am I helping to lull us into a sense of acceptance of the inevitable robot takeover? Maybe. Am I hastening the trend of people only being able to communicate through text rather than by speaking to one another? Frankly, I think that ship has sort of already sailed, and I'm just uh, adapting to that new reality. Now, can I technically make these robot voices say anything I want them to, and therefore edit any voicemail or comment you send to me and make it sound like you're saying something you didn't? Yeah, of course. Do I promise to not do that? Yeah, of course. So, as always, keep the comments coming in either at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me at j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, 
All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Thank you.